get into God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are needy people. We need your word. Without it, we would be wandering through this life. We would be trying to figure things out on our own. We would be worshiping a host of other gods, whether those are material possessions or power or whatever it may be, Lord. We would be giving our lives to those gods. We would be serving them. And we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you, by your grace, have saved us. And we pray this morning that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, and that you would change us. I pray that this wouldn't only be an intellectual exercise, but this would be a time where we are deeply changed by your word. Our disposition is changed, our perspective is changed, and we're made more like Christ. Thank you for your grace. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, most of you at some point in life have had an experience that you would describe as sort of a touch of transcendence, something that you would say was a sublime experience. It's something, it's an experience where something in creation or maybe some piece of artwork or music sort of draws you up and makes you feel small it makes you feel like a created being, and there's, there's something much bigger out there, something so beautiful and so powerful that um, you sense transcendence. There's more to everything than physical creation in that moment. Most of you know the name Steve Jobs. Of course, he's passed away a few years ago, but he was one of the founders of Apple, and he was hardly a, a believer in Christ and was pretty much an atheist, but Steve Jobs, when listening to Yo-Yo Ma play the cello, if you've ever heard Yo-Yo Ma, you'll understand this, but when listening to Yo-Yo Ma play the cello, he said, you playing is the best argument I've ever heard for the existence of God, because I don't really believe a human alone can do this. <laughs> now, if you've ever heard Yo-Yo Ma play an unaccompanied Bach piece, um, it, it, it's an amazing thing. I actually was tempted to uh, ask the folks in the back to play a little bit of one of his pieces this morning so that you could share in my joy over listening to him play the cello unaccompanied, but I decided not to do that. On my trips to Nepal, I've talked to you a number of times about those, but one of the things I was most excited about was to see the Himalaya Mountains. And there's something transcendent and sublime about standing there and looking up at these towering peaks uh, and seeing them. And there's this, this sense of just awe. And it's this combination of awe and transcendence. And at the same time, you feel like I'm so small. And there's this joy in that recognition as you, as you look out. And, and that sense can come from a number of different areas, from, from music, from the arts, from physical creation. But when you experience that, as you can tell this morning, my, my impulse is to share that with you. It's to praise something that is, is transcendent like that, and it is beautiful, and it is powerful. Um, we're created that way. That's at the heart of worship. Now, I'm not saying we worship those physical things or we worship a musical artist, but that, that desire, that 
impulse to praise what is beautiful and what is transcendent is at the heart of who we are as human beings. That's what drives us as human beings. We praise, honor, and adore what we love and what we find delight in. That's a good thing to do, and that's how we are wired. That's how God made us to do that. One author said it this way, to be human is to love. And it is what we love that defines who we are. Man, that is a rich and a full statement. What you love defines who you are. Our ultimate love is constitutive of our identity. What makes you who you are is what you love with an ultimate love. And then he says this about that ultimate love. This sort of ultimate love could also be described as that to which we ultimately pledge allegiance or to evoke language that is both religious and ancient. Our ultimate love is what we worship. What we worship is at the core of who we are because as human beings, we cannot help but worship something. It's what we were created to do. We're made as worshipers, and what you love and what you worship will ultimately determine the course and the character of your life. And so what you love and worship is significant in your life. Since that is At the core of our being, there's a natural impulse to worship and praise and honor and adore something when it is good and beautiful. Since that is how we were created and what we are called to do, our mission as a church is to reach into a broken world and through the gospel of Jesus Christ to help people who are given to idolatrous worship to come to know and to love Jesus Christ and to redirect their worship toward him. That's what we're here to do. So let me remind you of our mission statement again, because worship is key to this. Woodhaven Bible Church exists to make followers of Christ who worship God, connect with one another, and serve the church and the world. If this is our mission, this is what we're here to do. I mean, this is the summary of the mission that we have as a church. And if human beings are going to worship and love something, if that's how we're wired, we're like a love pump that you cannot turn off. The only question is, what is that pump directed at? What is it spilling out onto? Then it's important for us as we think about this mission to come to a clear understanding of what worship is biblically. What are we talking about? What do we want to make followers of Christ? What does it mean to make followers of Christ who worship God? What does it look like? What is biblical worship? And what are you and I aiming to foster in one another as we gather together? And as we pray, as we sing, as we sit under God's word, as we fellowship, all of those things, what are we aiming that toward in our worship? And so this morning, again, this is another topical message taken from our mission statement, but I want to study four aspects of biblical worship And the goal here today is to help us become a congregation of true worshipers. So four aspects of biblical worship, and the goal is to help us become a congregation of true worshipers. Now, the first one of these, and the one we're going to spend the vast majority of our time on, is worship is gospel-centered. Worship is gospel-centered. This is the heart of it. And to really understand why, This has to be the case. You cannot have worship apart from it being centered on the gospel. To understand why worship is gospel-driven, we have to think about the broader story of Scripture, what's going on in the broader story of Scripture. 
particularly as it relates to worship. So if you think back to Genesis 1 and 2, what do we find in the creation account with Adam and Eve regarding worship? Well, you don't find Adam and Eve getting together for a little church service. You don't don't find them singing hymns. But what you do find in Genesis 1 and 2 is they are in perfect communion with God. They are rightly related to Him. They're living in obedience. They're walking with Him, fellowshipping with Him. Their affections and their lives are rightly ordered before God, at least in Genesis 1 and 2. And that's how we were created, to be. That is the original design for us, to walk in communion and obedience and fellowship and affection and worship with God. Of course, then in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve eat the fruit And that dramatically impacted their worship of God, the way they related to God the Father. And it dramatically impacted their worship in a couple of different ways. And and this is important as we're going through kind of the biblical storyline. The first way that the fall impacted their worship was that because they listened to the voice of the serpent, they were ultimately placing self on the throne and giving their adoration, their love and affection to self. They thought, I know best. I deserve this. I am at the center. So rather than giving reverence and adoration and love to God, they turned it in on self. I deserve to be like God. And since that moment, human beings have come into the world and we all aim our ultimate love, our worship, our affection at something other than God. That's how we come prepackaged, and then as we enter into this world, we cultivate those ultimate loves directed to other things. We nurture idols, and we give ourselves to them, and we learn to worship things other than God. That's idolatry. Idolatry at root is a worship disorder. It's giving your affection, your ultimate love to something other than God, to something that doesn't deserve it as God does. So that's the first way is that we have learned and we have become people who aim our worship at something else. But the second way that the fall impacted our worship as human beings is that even when we do worship the true God, now that worship must be regulated. Adam and Eve were walking in the presence of God. They were dwelling with Him in close communion. They were honoring and adoring Him as they spent time with Him, but they no longer could do that after Genesis 3. I mean, you remember they were cast out of the garden. They couldn't be in God's presence anymore. They're driven from the garden. And as you read the Old Testament, it becomes clear very quickly that men have to approach God carefully. If you think forward to the story of Israel, when God rescues his people out of Egypt, he brings them into the wilderness, he makes them a nation chosen by him, the entire second half of the book of Exodus is spent setting up the tabernacle. I mean, it actually gives the detailed plans for the tabernacle twice (laughs) if you've read through the second half of the book of Exodus. Why? Why is the tabernacle so central to who Israel is as a nation? Because They were to be in God's presence, but they could not dwell directly in His presence because of their sinfulness. 
And so now that had to be regulated. The way they approached God had to be regulated, had to be carefully defined by God. They could only worship him through a go-between, through a mediator, through a priest who would guide them and help them. And as they worshiped through the tabernacle, through the priest, there had to be atonement made for their sinfulness. Their sins had to be covered if they were to go into the presence of a holy God. And only one human being could actually go into God's presence on one day a year, on the day of atonement, Leviticus 16. And so all of that was regulated and guided and carefully defined because of man's sinfulness, because our affection is so easily aimed at other things. Now, that approach wasn't, wasn't bad, but that's certainly not what we find in the New Covenant, is it? So you come to the New Testament, and you come to Jesus Christ, and He comes onto the scene, and listen to what He says in John chapter 4 regarding worship. Jesus said to this woman at the well, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem at the temple, regulated by the priests and through sacrifices, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation. Bringing back into relationship with God is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. This is the goal of our salvation. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The point is that with the coming of Jesus Christ, now, through His work, we can approach God the Father with greater intimacy and proximity than ever before. Why? What did he do that makes this possible? He is both the great high priest who mediates between man and God the Father, and he is the atoning sacrifice that completely eradicates our sins so that we can now approach through him and worship genuinely and truly in spirit and truth. Listen to what Hebrews says about this. Therefore, after explaining all this about Christ's priesthood, And about his atoning sacrifice, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance, no fear, no doubt, that we're going to be struck dead as we approach God as His children, in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can now engage God the Father through Jesus in spirit and truth. We approach Him with confidence and boldness in worship. And so what this means is that all true worship must be Christian Worship. Now, that that sounds silly to say, right? I mean, what are you talking about? Why would you even say that? All true worship must be Christian worship. That means that you and I can only approach God through Jesus Christ. He's the crux. He's the centerpiece. 
He is the path. He is how we come to worship God. So let me try to make this real practical, hopefully, for us this morning. I want to try to adjust how you and I think about worship and what we're doing in particular when we come in here on Sunday morning. And certainly this applies to your private life as well, but let's think about what we're doing as we come in here. There are sort of two main approaches in the world to worship. When you think about coming into the presence of the divine and worshiping whatever deity that may be, okay? So the first approach is pagan worship, and I'm going to sort of group everything under that broad heading. And as I use that term, unfortunately, many Christians, some Christians, without even realizing it, are participating in a pagan sort of worship rather than a Christian sort of worship. What's pagan worship? This is what all other religions do. It means I think of worship as something that I primarily do in order to earn the favor of whatever deity I'm approaching. So I come into the presence of that deity and I do whatever practices, whatever emotions, whatever I'm going to do, lay prostrate before that deity in order to placate that deity and in order to come into his presence in the right way. I want to gain his favor. So whether that's Allah, whether that's Vishnu in the Hindu God, pantheon of gods, whether that's Yahweh, you can do this with Yahweh. I approach deity in my own, try to offer reverence and adoration and praise with the goal of earning his favor. And the the great difficulty of this approach is it brings weariness. This is hard. And so many Christians think of worship as along these lines. We think, I have to come in on Sunday, and if I'm going to truly worship God, I have to conjure up these emotions. I have to think in a certain way about what I'm doing in order to earn God's favor, in order to come into His presence. How is that different from the Christian approach to worship? What makes what hopefully we're doing this morning, Christian, in its worship. Well, by the very name, Christian, biblical worship happens through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's the center. I do not approach God on my own, trying to earn His favor, trying to placate Him this morning by offering Him something, some sort of worship. When you come into church on Sunday... You are not beginning to worship out of your own heart. You are not starting something new and trying to come into God's presence if you're a true believer. When you come into worship on Sunday and in your own private life, if it's Christian worship, you acknowledge that I am joining into something that is already taking place. I am participating in a worship service that is happening around the throne of God because of Jesus Christ right now. He's already taken care of everything, and I don't have to do anything to earn his favor. I don't have to placate him, God the Father, in any way. I am accepted fully on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. That's the heartbeat of Christian worship. I am joining and participating in something that is already going on through the work of Jesus Christ by His Spirit. I'm given access to God the Father because of what Christ has done, 
because I have been united with him, joined with him. I am in the throne room with him now, seated in the heavenly places. Listen to how one author put this definition of worship. Christian worship is, therefore, our participation through the Spirit in the Son's communion with the Father. In His vicarious life of worship and intercession, He has accomplished it all for us. It is our response to our Father for all that He has done for us in Christ. It's our response. It's our recognition of this reality and our response of joy and praise and honor and thankfulness that I get included in this because of Christ. And that's why our worship is always gospel-centered. This is the heartbeat of it. Because without Jesus, you and I don't have this access. It's through His body torn for us. It's through His work on our behalf. And so our worship is a response to the gift that God has given us in Christ. It's participating in Him. Ephesians 2 explains this beautifully, I think. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and look at the language here, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus all of this takes place because we're with Christ we're in Christ and it's centered on him so very practically speaking when you come in and we begin to sing, and you're cold, and you're just not feeling it this morning, and it's tough. You don't have to do anything to get those emotions high. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to sing at a certain volume to earn God's favor and to show that you're really worshiping Him. If you come in in the morning, and you're cold, and you're not feeling it, and it's been a tough week, and things are difficult, you already have God's approving eye this morning because of what Jesus Christ did. Your worship is already acceptable to Him because of what Jesus Christ did. Because you're united with His Son. That's the starting point. That's where we begin. That reality is what brings us to true Christian biblical worship. Everything else after that falls into place, I think. And that's why we spend so much time here, the fact that worship must be gospel-centered. And that brings us to our last three aspects of biblical worship. All these will go much quicker, but all of these flow out of worship being gospel-centered. The second one, second aspect of biblical worship. So our worship takes place in the reality of being in Christ, and it's gospel-centered, but then as we begin to think about the function of worship, worship is a disposition, all right? So as we learn about the work of Christ, as we interact with what He has done, with His great high priesthood, with His atoning sacrifice for sin, as we realize that we've been accepted through Him, then our disposition is changed and our hearts begin to rise up in worship. 
This is what happens inside us, in our hearts. This would be that transcendent response I'm talking about earlier, the joy, the adoration, the awe, the fear at who God is in Christ. I mean, you can see this all over Scripture, right? In Revelation chapter 4, around the throne, the elders fall down physically in front of God. They react physically because of who He is and what He's done. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is undone. He's fearful because of his sin in the presence of God. He needs atonement for that. But he has a, a physical response to God. In Scripture, the words for worship, there's, there's so many different words for worship. I, it would have been impossible to try to categorize and do a taxonomy of these words for worship this morning. But a lot of the words that are used to talk about worship in Scripture actually literally mean to fall over, prostrate in front of someone and put your nose in the dirt. There is a physical response, and even more than that physical response, true worship engages the heart and brings us to an emotional response to who God is. It's a disposition. It's a change in who we are at the deepest level. And there can be all sorts of responses that are involved in worship. There's joy, there's fear, there's excitement, there's satisfaction, there's adoration. Sometimes the response will be a physical response. We may lift our hands in worship and praise. We may fall on our faces. We may even dance for joy. Because that's a biblical response to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But all of that begins as we understand and appropriate the work of Christ for us and our position in Him now. And so what do you do if you come in and you're not feeling it on Sunday? You bring your mind back to the work of Christ and you sit there and you think there. Here's the beauty of the gospel. I am accepted and I don't have to create an emotional fervor to try to earn God's favor this morning. I'm an adopted son or daughter through Jesus Christ. And as you do that, I think over time, emotions will come into play and your disposition will be changed. So worship begins inside of us, but it doesn't end there. Beyond a disposition, worship is what we're doing this morning. It is a communal participation. It's a worship service. This is part of it. We gather together to corporately praise God. You can worship at home. There's no doubt about it. I hope you worship at home in your private time with the Lord, but you cannot only worship privately. Why? If you are in Christ, if our worship is truly gospel-centered, then you have not only been joined to Christ, you have been joined to other worshipers, the community of faith that we have here, and we gather together as that community of faith in order to corporately praise God for what He has done. This gathering is a vital element of our worship. It's not enough to do it privately. We've been saved into a community of believers, and we come together to edify one another and to provoke one another to love and good works and to worship. Colossians 3 shows how this works itself out. So keep in mind, before I read this, this whole passage in Colossians gives us the reality of our union with Christ, and then Paul says, here are the implications. You love one another, you serve one another, you forgive one another, 
And this is one of the implications of being in Christ, this passage. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The implications of the gospel are not just private. It's not just having love in your heart for someone else. It means that if you are truly saved, you gather together with other believers to edify one another and to worship the Lord together, to sing in your hearts corporately to Him. It's not fulfilling this command to say, I'm a part of the universal church, and then to say, that's enough. I don't need to be committed or involved in a local church because I'm a part of the universal church. The universal church always in the Bible finds expression in the local church. It's the way you participate in the universal church is by being here and worshiping together and loving one another. You can't fulfill this command of admonishing one another without your local congregation. You can't do it. It's like saying, I'm a football player, but not actually being on a football team. What does that even mean? You learn to play, you learn to function as a football player on a team in community with other people, and it's the same thing with the local church. But beyond this communal participation, if you continue in this passage, this communal participation actually flows out into a lifestyle of worship. Verse 17, there at the bottom. So we sing together, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And that's our last aspect of biblical worship. It's gospel-centered. It's a disposition of the heart and often of the body in worship. It's a communal participation with one another as we build one another up by singing together, by praising God together, by edifying one another. And then lastly, as we do that, it flows out into a life that is fully offered to God. Worship does not stay private, and it doesn't even stay within the walls of this church. It overflows and impacts everything that you do and all that you are. You know, over the years, when, you, when I've heard people talk about worship, very often they will talk about worship being a sort of a disposition, a private response to God's revelation, and, and that's certainly true, but they'll talk about it only in that way. But then on the other end of the spectrum, I've heard people say, well, worship is all of life, you know, trying to broaden it out and say, when you truly worship God, it does impact all that you are. And that's certainly true, but it's not either or. It's both of those. Worship is such a huge part of our walk with Christ that it actually impacts everything that we are and all that we do. And so if you look at these four aspects of biblical worship, these form a progression in our lives. We start with the gospel. That's the hinge point. That's the center. That's the engine that drives it. And then it flows into a disposition in our hearts and our bodies and how we worship the Lord. And then that works itself out in the community where we edify one another together. And then that overflows to all of our lives being offered to God. You know this is true because of, I didn't put the text up there, but Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
beseech you by the mercy of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, all that you are, your body, the way you engage with the world around you and others, everything is offered to God as a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable service of worship. This makes sense. All of your life is offered because of what God has done. That's the flow here. Beginning with the gospel, the mercy of God, and flowing out into all of life and not bypassing the disposition and the communal participation. And here's a little chart I took from uh, a writer named Daniel Block. He's got some really helpful stuff on worship, but you can see how this works. It starts in the center, and we can put the gospel all around this. Every, all of this takes place in the gospel, and it flows out into all of life. Now, when you see this, and you realize Romans 12:1, this is our reasonable service of worship to offer our bodies and our lives as a living sacrifice, it makes sense that we would have this in our mission statement, doesn't it? And it makes sense that we would be about calling people to come and worship God. This would be a primary task that we're pursuing. We want followers of Christ who worship God, who are engaging in this little chart here, who are having their lives changed by the gospel, their participation in the church changed, and everything that they are. So how do we develop worshipers like this? How do we develop followers of Christ who are in this process? And the answer is, is what we talked about last week. It's the gospel. We learn the gospel, we live out the gospel, and we speak of the gospel to one another. Those are the means by which we grow into worshipers and the gospel shapes us and changes us. And when that happens, we have hearts that are full of joy and satisfaction. We have a vibrant worship service together that edifies us and builds us up. And then we are sent out into the world to live as living sacrifices to impact the world around us with Christ's good news. And that's what we're trying to do here at the church. That's what you and I are a part of. It's not just the elders trying to accomplish that. It's all of us together calling one another to this lifestyle of worship. That's our goal. That's what we're all about. Let me close in prayer. Father, we want to be worshipers of you. We are amazed at what you have done for us in Christ. And even now, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would bring these truths to our minds. Help us to remember all that you have done and all that you have accomplished through your Son in us the gifts of grace that you have given. Thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.